0: Please open your Bibles to the 23rd chapter of Luke, 23rd chapter of Luke, and after a little over three years, this morning we will arrive at the cross. This is the point why Jesus came since as early as chapter 9. He has set his face towards this event. This is the high point of his ministry. it's single-handedly both an amazing and wondrous event. And yet as we watch the evil unfolding, a wicked event. And in God's sovereign purposes, he uses, he turns, he intends the evil of these corrupt people for good. So let's read Luke 23. If you don't have a Bible, the text is on the back of the notes, which is in the bulletin. Let's read Luke twenty-three, twenty-six to 31. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But he turned to them. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem... Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us into the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Lord God, as we follow your Son on the road to the cross, we would hear, we would see, we would um, understand. We marvel at our Savior's faithfulness. We marvel that even here He is serving others, teaching others, speaking to others. And Lord, we, uh, we, we know that seeing the glory of your Son is what will change us. So open our eyes. Remove the veil, soften the hard hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Call this encounters on the way to the cross as we will look at two particular encounters. Um, starting next Sunday, we're going to start with the actual crucifixion itself. It's an event we've been anticipating for so long and yet occurs so simply in Luke's gospel. Look at verse 33. When they came to the place that is called the skull of, there they crucified him. That's it. And he goes on, and yet we know there's a lot more going on there as well. But this morning, Luke doesn't just have us go from the trial. If you remember last week, Pilate surrendered Jesus to the will of the people. He he confessed Christ's innocence three times, in contrast to Peter's three denials. Three times, Pilate says, "I have found no guilt in him." Verse four. Verse. Uh, 14 and 15. And a third time in verse 22, a third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt, deserving death. So Peter denies Jesus four times, and on the lips of this corrupt man, three confessions of Christ's innocence. And Luke emphatically points out as the will of the people, the Jewish people that override Pilate, verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 23. They were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. And so, now we're on the way to the cross. And Luke wants us to see some things on the way to the cross. He wants us to see Simon of Cyrene carrying Christ's cross. And he wants us to see the women who are following and lamenting after. So we'll look at those and then we'll have a time of Communion. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. First question I'm going to ask is, who's the they? Well, the they, I believe, is linked back to verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. The they, then is the the leaders of Israel and the crowd who have gathered. And so this is another way in which Luke makes it clear, Israel and its leaders are responsible for Christ's death in the fullest, in the largest sense. Rome's overseeing the crucifixion, but who is actually taking Jesus and bringing him to Golgotha? The scribes, the elders, the people of Israel. They are leading him away. Overseen, of course, by Rome, There's one more attempt on Luke's part to make it clear. This crucifixion is the result of Israel's insistence. The people's insistence. And then we have a strange event. They seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus so Golgotha or the place of the skull is outside of Jerusalem proper there's some distance to go and as they go they they grab Simon of Cyrene and have him carry the cross now what's interesting is this man has a name and when Luke who's done research names people and especially when he does what Wikipedia would call disambiguation Simon's a pretty common name so it's not just any Simon it's Siren Simon of Cyrene What's the implication? Luke intends, expects, invites verification. In fact, presumably, this man may well be known to Theophilus. That's the first blank. That Simon of Cyrene, if not known to Theophilus, could be known. It invites verification. We, we have had other times where simply a widow or a man, when, when you get a name, you get clarifying details. So, Cyrene is from northern Africa, what we'd call modern-day Libya. And the Cyrenians um, had a Jewish contingent there, that he shows up here. Um, in, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter and the apostles gather, and it lists all the men and the different tongues who were present at Pentecost. Cyrene is, is one of them. And Luke gives us this further point. He has just arrived to Jerusalem. Just coming in. So presumably this man is a a Jew, most likely. He's coming to Jerusalem to observe the feast in obedience to Deuteronomy. And presumably he has no idea what's going on. He has no idea about who Jesus is. Presumably he has no idea about what this trial is. He's minding his own business. He's coming in from a long journey. And a Roman soldier grabs him and has him carry Christ's cross. I think one other thing we can presume about him is by virtue of the fact that Luke is inviting or even pointing Theophilus to connect with him, this man becomes a believer. This man becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, why would Luke direct Theophilus to somebody who is a a God-cursing blasphemer? And other biblical accounts um, bear this out. In in Mark's account, I don't usually cross-reference, but we get a little bit more detail about Siren. In Mark's gospel, verse 15-21, we read, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And Rufus, of course, shows up in Romans 16. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who would be Simon's wife, who has been a mother to me as well. So our suspicions that this man comes to faith, not only has he come to faith, or he may already be a faithful Jew, his family is faithful, his children are well known in the church. And so Luke, having done his research diligently, points Theophilus in ways to communicate with him. Again, these are the marks of real history. Um, you know, fairy tales are there was a man. Here's no, his his name was Simon, he was from Cyrene. Mark, he's the father of Rufus and Alexander. So Simon carries the cross. Now, presumably, this is the cross piece. It's possible that Jesus is carrying the entire cross, most likely the cross piece. We don't know. It's also possible because it tells us it came in behind Jesus. Some have suggested that Jesus is still carrying the front of the cross. Simon's carrying the back of the cross. We don't know. That's not what's important here. But whenever we're given details, we need to ask, why are we told this? Why why do we need to know this? Why is it important for us to know that Simon of Cyrene was conscripted to carry the cross of Christ? And people have made interesting allusions to the fact that Jesus told his disciples twice in Luke's gospel they need to carry their cross. Well, this is Jesus' cross. And if you start pressing that symbolism, it's going to get really weird really fast. Now, I think the primary point here, and this is point B of this, is to emphasize to us that Jesus was truly exhausted. The Romans are not nice people. And we aren't hearing about anyone else being conscripted to carry anyone else's cross. Presumably the only reason Simon is conscripted this way is because Jesus is Exhausted. And the gospel account has given us good reason to conclude that. He's been up all night without any sleep, without any food. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been dressed up in a robe, suffering abuse. And he is exhausted. In other words, again, this is Luke. Emphasizing the real humanity of Jesus. We can be tempted to think that all the things Jesus does, all the things he endures, well, of course he did. He's, he's really, you know, he's a son of God. It's kind of like we view Clark Kent, the Superman show. Well, you know, it may look like he's in danger, but we all know that under the shirt, da, da, da. right? And so Jesus, you know, he endures temptation while well, he's the son of God. Luke wants us to understand Jesus, the man, is truly weak. This, is, again, is not theater. Uh, The first point, Jesus has already endured much. The last time He's had food or sustenance was at the Last Supper the night before. And this is also remarkable. Turn back to chapter 22. You remember Jesus praying in the garden, right? And He asked that the cup might pass, and God's answer is no. But what does the Father do? Verse 43. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. So Jesus labors in prayer with the father. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Father says, no, I will not let the cup pass, but I will strengthen you. The father heard his prayer and strengthened him. And I want you to understand something. You ask God for strength. We know God strengthened Jesus. And yet, he's so exhausted, they have to bring someone in to carry the cross. God's strengthening of you does not mean your trials will be easy. Praying to God for help and strength does not mean they won't be difficult. It just means you will get through them. Jesus labored in prayer. The Father sent an angel to strengthen him. And yet, the next day, he is so exhausted, someone has to help carry the cross. I know if you're like me, when I ask for strength, what I really want is make it all seem easy, Lord. Make it all seem, you know, simple. Jesus was strengthened by the Father, and Jesus was still pressed to the limit of his strength. He was exhausted. He really was human. He really suffered on our behalf. And so that, I think, is what we learn from this incident with Simon of Cyrene. Next, now we turn our attention to the women following lament after Jesus. Verse 27-31, through There followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things and the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now Jesus makes a number of utterances in in the remainder of the gospel in the crucifixion account. You know he was silent before Herod. He said very little to the Sanhedrin, very little to um, Pilate. And yet he speaks. And you might be tempted to think a man contemned to death would speak about his innocence, with the injustice of what's taking place. But all of Jesus' utterances are towards other people. Jesus is the servant, the suffering servant of God to the very last. And as he is leading this path to the cross... Women come behind him mourning. Now, some have suggested that these are not faithful women. I, I disagree. I think Jesus' response indicates they are sincere. And some have suggested there was, a, there was just a... This is the theater. They, they'd have professional mourners, but the New Testament knows nothing about that. What I do know is these women are following Jesus, and Jesus speaks to them kindly, calls them daughters of Jerusalem. So I take it as sincere. Which means then, point A, Israel's solidarity is now divided. I try to make a big point of the fact that when Pilate is overrun, his will is overturned by the will of the people, we have a unified Israel. Israel speaks with one voice, univocally. Crucify, crucify the leaders, the scribes, the priests, the people. They're all in unison. They're all being addressed by one pronoun, they. They're unified. So Israel, a unified Israel, rejects their Messiah. But that unification in Luke's Gospel is short-lived. Already there is division. Already we see the remnant that remains. Yes, Israel as a whole, in a unified fashion, has rejected their Messiah. Yet Luke here shows us two groups, right? They were following Him, a great multitude of people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him and so already we see some faithful group and again it's remarkable the role that women play in luke's gospel Um, luke highlights them the second point here many women have been long been faithful disciples when luke starts the second phase of jesus galilean ministry in luke 8 we get another sort of programmatic text where he describes what jesus in general was doing and we read this Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, provided for them out of all their means. So Jesus has had faithful women disciples. I mean, commented that the men are nowhere to be seen, yet they'll show up a little later in this account. And some have theorized that possibly the women would get more um, grace, more slack. Men mourning, men, men crying out against Jesus' crucifixion might suffer persecution. It's, it's possible. What we do know is these women are following. They're faithful. And what are they doing? They're weeping. They're lamenting. They're mourning. That's an appropriate reaction. They, they've heard three times from Pilate, he's innocent. And they know at the very least an innocent man has been condemned to death. If they are also further followers of Jesus, his disciples, they know he's the Son of God who is innocent has been condemned to death. And not just any death, but death on a tree, a torturous death. And so they weep and they follow him. What Jesus does is remarkable. Remember, what we've got is Jesus up front with Simon behind him, a crowd and people behind them, and Jesus is is walking to the cross. And turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So point C, Jesus gently redirects their sorrow. Jesus gently redirects their sorrow. This is, this is some irony going on here. They have a legitimate reason to grieve. Something terrible and tragic is taking place, and what Jesus is, in effect, saying, "You're, you're missing the far greater thing to mourn." You see, for Jesus, what lay, lies in front of him is is tragic suffering, torture, but ultimately, what vindication, glory, resurrection, being seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' story, the waters will get rougher and deeper, but ultimately He will come through the other side. He will be vindicated. He will be exalted. He is near the end of His road. But they, they have far worse things in one sense coming. Israel's rejection of Jesus seals their doom. So let's look at this. First, He speaks to them tenderly. Daughters of Jerusalem. Daughters of Jerusalem. It's a tender, prophetic title. He's already spoken this way. Remember in Luke 13, as he approached and he sees Jerusalem and he cries out, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children, your daughters, your sons, Jerusalem, how often would I gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. So these are inhabitants of Jerusalem, these women. And so what Jesus is saying is is, you're not really mourning the, the thing you should be mourning. Something even more tragic is taking place. Because point two, Jesus' fate of crucifixion does not seal his doom, but theirs. Jesus' fate does not seal his doom, but theirs. What do I mean? Well, we know, Jesus knows, they'll kill him, but he won't stay dead. That's not the end of his story. So they will, to use the language of of Genesis 3, the serpent will wound his heel, but ultimately he will crush the head of the serpent. Ultimately, Jesus will be vindicated, exalted. Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So yes, the wrath of the Father, the pain of crucifixion lies ahead of him, but beyond that is joy. And glory. This fate of crucifixion is not the end of Jesus' story, but it does seal the fate of Jerusalem. Jesus has already made this remark connecting their rejection of Him with their judgment. In rejecting Him, they bring judgment upon themselves and that judgment will be terrible. So point three, Israel will be judged for its actions. Israel will be judged for its actions. Turn back to Luke 11. Verse 47. Remember, Jesus is at the Pharisees and he starts pronouncing woes and judgments upon the Pharisees and the lawyers. Verse 47. Woe to you! If you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed... So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them. You build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And again, if you turn back to Luke 13, as he approaches Jerusalem, and the same context speaks of the rejection of him, his desire to gather up their children, is another word of judgment. So connected with israel 's rejection of Jesus is their sure and certain judgment? so jesus fate does not seal his doom but theirs. And so Jesus is pronouncing judgment. These women are weeping. And what Jesus is saying, "Look beyond this. The consequence of israel 's rejection of me is God will judge them. And weep for yourselves. Weep for your families. Weep for the city. Because of the doom that is gonna be coming upon it. Point three, Israel will be judged for its actions. And Jesus uses striking uh, picturesque language to just communicate how difficult it will be. The point is really simple. Blessed are those who don't have to watch their children suffer through what is coming. Right? That's the logic. Why else would a woman be blessed who's barren? Because you're not going to see what happens to your kids. So whatever is coming is going to be so terrible, so tragic, so awful. Those without children, and in this culture, being without children is considered a curse, are going to be considered blessed because they won't see the destruction of their children. Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Then they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us. To the hills cover us so it's not simply that judgment is coming but this judgment will be awful will be terrible that's where they should redirect their mourning to and then that phrase calling on the mountains to fall on us and cover us is borrowed from Hosea 10.8 listen to Hosea 10.8 the high places of Aven." The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistles shall grow up on their altars and they shall say to the mountains, cover us! The hills fall on us. Now, it's possible that Jesus is referring to the siege of Jerusalem as destruction in about 20, 30 years from here in 70 AD. We know that thousands upon thousands of Jews were crucified. It's also entirely possible that this is speaking of Um, The events spoken of in in Zechariah when all the nations of the world gather up against Jerusalem and they break down the wall and they kill half the people and they, they take others away as slaves. What we do know is this. Israel endures under God's judgment while Israel remains unrepentant in rejecting their Messiah. And in some degrees, you can just look at Israel's history and see that. Israel, if you read Deuteronomy, while they are unfaithful to the covenant, abide under the curses of God. And so things have been bad for Israel and we know moving forward things will get worse in the end times before they get better. Before they get better. Turn to one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Zechariah 12. That's not the final word. It's thankfully not the final word. Zechariah, if you go to Matthew, it's one book back. One book to the left. Zechariah. Oh, two books back, sorry, Malachi. Or for those of you who are Italian, Malachi. Malachi. Um, Zechariah um, we, we spent a year or so going through the book of Zechariah a few years ago and Zechariah's writing to Israel returned from captivity he's writing to encourage them and then at the end of the book we get pick up verse chapter 12 verse 1 a, a prophecy an oracle a burden the oracle or the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel What we learn is there's a day coming and the day is going to be difficult for Israel. Right, Verse 3, On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples and all who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord. Verse 6, On that day. Verse 8, On that day. Verse 9, On that day. What we learn is there's coming a day in the future where all the nations of the world will gather up around Jerusalem, that city. In fact, jump over to chapter 14. It describes the same day from a different perspective. 14.1, Behold, the day is coming from the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped, and half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So it may well be that this is what Jesus is speaking of. He might be speaking of 70, AD. What's certain is this. Difficult, very hard days are coming for Jerusalem. But I want you to see that that is not the final word for Israel. Chapter 12, look at verse 10. And look at the sovereign grace of God. It's not that Israel does anything particularly to invite this grace, but God who keeps His promises. God who delights in saving. We read this. I will pour out... In the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. And what we're looking at here is the national repentance and conversion of Israel which leads the final end of this battle. is a very different outcome than the way it looks at the beginning. If you go back to 14, verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. So things are going to get worse, darker, worse, 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 Total calamity, the walls broken, the people taken. Then they look upon him whom they have pierced, they repent, they believe. And then God goes out and fights for them. And so Jesus speaks of the, of the doom, the dread, the terrible fate that awaits this city because it has rejected its Messiah. Back to, back to Luke 23. Its judgment will be terrible. And then Jesus ends with this sort of proverb, cryptic saying, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now the argument here is from the lesser to the greater. Uh, if, if, If the green, wet wood is burning, how much more will the dry wood burn, right? You get the logic. So it's harder to burn green wood than dried wood. And so if the wood is wet and burning, what will happen to the dry stuff? is lesser to the greater. What is Jesus saying? Um, well, in one sense, if this is what these wicked people do to an innocent man, think of what they'll do to those who truly deserve judgment. That's possibly what he's saying. But what I think he's saying is even stronger than that. And here are your blanks. If God has not spared Jesus, but let him feel the full rate of his wrath, how much less will he spare them? If God has not spared Jesus, how much less will he spare them? Or you could even put in "or us. The Bible is emphatic on this point. See, for us as well, the death of Jesus seals our doom. Let me explain what I mean. So many people I know in this world are hoping, hoping, believing, trusting that God's a real nice guy, and when they die and stand before him, he'll see all the good they tried to do and their good intentions, and he'll say something like, well, I know you messed up, but it's okay, come on in, right? The death of Jesus, what God required for forgiveness, demolishes such hopes. If that is the case, Jesus didn't need to die, did he? Did he? God required satisfaction. His righteousness, His justice demanded satisfaction. Jesus bore His wrath. And having done that, do you think anything else will do? Do you think God will accept any other offering, any other sacrifice? And the answer is no. So Jesus' death confirms for us that there is only one way. There's only one Savior. There's only one sacrifice. There's only one mediator. No, all ways do not lead to God. Jesus' death seals the doom of any other hope. For if God did not spare His own Son, how much less will He spare spare those who do not have faith in Him? That's the logic for us, for them. Listen to 1 Peter 4.17. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. and If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So so think about that. Even as we follow behind Jesus as He goes to the cross, even as He steps away from being nailed to the tree, He turns and He redirects and corrects these mourning women. There's something worse to consider. There's something greater to fear. And that is the judgment of God that Jesus' death heralds First, for those who rejected Him in Israel, but for also for any who reject Him in this room. God did not spare His own Son who is innocent, who is sinless. He will not spare you unless you hide in Him, unless you trust in Him. God has put forward one means of salvation. In fact, the very reason Jesus is going to die on the cross is to make salvation possible. That those who have faith in Him, those who turn to Him from their sin might be forgiven. But believe me, if God did not spare His Son, He will not spare you no matter how good intentions you have. No matter how many good works you have. He simply will not. There's only one sacrifice. There's only one Savior. And if you are not trusting in Him, if you, like Israel, have rejected Him, woe, weep for yourself. Weep for yourself and the damnation and tragedy that has kind of come upon you and abide over you. That's Jesus' words to these women, and that's his words to us. Jesus' death on the cross makes it absolutely certain God requires a reckoning for sin. God will not simply look the other way and forget about it. Accounts will be settled, justice will be done. That is made absolutely clear and certain the death of Jesus. Now, the good news, praise God, is there is a Savior. There is a sacrifice. There is an atonement. And that is what we're going to celebrate now as we transition to a time of communion.